Well, it may seem odd to uh, start Advent with a sermon on divorce, uh, but you're welcome. That's what we're going to do. Now, uh, this is interesting. So we chose the book of Malachi um, because it is relevant to Advent. It is the last book of the Old Testament. It is the last word from God, uh, from a prophet. It's not the, not the last book written, I think, Ezra, I think it falls between Ezra and Nehemiah just as far as chronologically when it was written in history, but it's the last word from a prophet before he sends Jesus. So there's 400 years of silence and then, and then Jesus shows up. And so it's, it's, a, it's an important book in that way. It certainly is, is relevant because we're going to see as we get closer to the end of the book, there's a foretelling of John the Baptist. There's a, a promise of, of Jesus himself coming. And so that's going to lead us into the Christmas season. And so uh, we're in that book for that reason. And, and, and yet, as we're going to spend today talking about marriage and, and divorce and why that matters to God, I, I want to let the fact that it, it sets in this short book, this is one of the most um, extensive passages in the Old Testament about marriage. And I, I want you to let that matter to you as you think about, okay, this was a book that was written uh, by a prophet, this, this someone that God speaks to and gives a word, a burden, as we saw as we started, to, to d- deliver to his people. And so it's important enough uh, for God when he's confronting his people, a people who, who don't really feel like they're doing anything wrong. These are religious people. They haven't turned themselves over to uh, false idol worship, but, but they're, they're, they're religious kind of hypocrites, and they're going through motions, and they're not really, uh, they're half-heartedly worship. And God is calling them out for a series of things. There's six disputations. That, uh, that you see this kind of call out and response from the people. Uh, a rhetorical response from the people, and then God giving a further explanation. And one of those things that makes it in this very short book is marriage, how they're treating one another. And so we see that, that, that we, like God already has called them out for how they're interacting with him. He started out saying, am I not your father? If so, where's my honor? Uh, they're missing the whole idea that God is their father who is to be feared and loved, revered and adored. And, and that is the crux of all of our relationship with God. If we don't get that right, then the rules and the, the commands and the invitations that come later will feel like a burden to us instead of an invitation to life. And so he starts out with that. And, and calls his people to remember how they've been loved. And then he calls them out for their false worship, for their, their profaning of the, um, the offerings, for offering half-hearted, you know, um, you know, gimpy animals in worship. And then he calls out their priests for allowing such things. And, and so we're talking about primarily their relationship with God so far, but we know that God cares not only about loving him, Right? When Jesus asks, hey, what's the most important command? He says, what? Love Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it. See, he doesn't let him get off with just one. He says, and, and this too, love your neighbor as yourself. So loving God, loving one another, they're not exclusive things. They're not like, well, if you do this and then maybe you get around it. it, it all a part of loving God is actually about loving one another too. The, the vertical relationship and the horizontal relationship are, are interconnected and how we're operating with God. If we're truly gonna love God, then we have to love one another. And so that's what we see uh, Malachi's calling them out right at the, at the start of this passage in verse 10. He says, have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? So he's saying, listen, why, like we all have the same Father. Why are we pretending like this is an okay way to live? This idea of having one father, like it takes a little bit to set in, but for me, that one of the first things I thought about was like having an understanding of who our authority is, 
right? Having an understanding of what that authority says we should do. And, um, and, and I don't know if you remember back when you were a kid and, and going to a, uh, you know, a friend's house and you're like, oh, your parents let you do that? That's awesome. That's all I want to do, right? Like, my parents don't let me ride a four-wheeler. Can we just ride the four-wheeler all day, every day, right? Or my parents don't let me watch that. Can we just watch all of that? And your friend's like, dude, it's just whatever. And, and, and so you, you get this, like, there's different authorities. Or it made me think of, like, what happens every few weeks here after church is one of my kids will come up to me and ask if so-and-so can come over or if they can go to so-and-so's house. And they will usually say, and their, their parents said it was okay. Well, listen, I've learned to know better. Right? I've learned that I need to talk to that parent because that parent may have said something like, yeah, it's fine if you go play over there. Right? Or that, like, who knows what that parent, or, or what my spouse has said. My spouse may have said no, and then they just came to me. So you got to understand, like, we got to get on the same page as far as authority goes, right? And so when there's different authorities, you got to know who, who are we following. Well, my, um, Malachi is calling them to remember, like, hey, we don't have different dads. We don't have different standards of authority. We can't pretend like this is okay because we're somewhere else. We are all under the same authority and we know how we're supposed to treat each other. So why are we acting like this? And you see that he's calling it profaning the covenant. Profaning the covenant of our fathers. And he goes on to say, verse 11, Judah has been faithless and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has profaned the sanctuary of God. He's, he's building up this, this indictment on them. Like there's, we don't even know exactly what he's talking about yet, but he is, he's coming hard at this, this indictment because uh, partly I think because he wants, he, he has, he's confronting something that they actually don't see as a big deal. Right? Do you know how that is in a culture? It's like, well, I mean, we're not living like them. I mean, we're not really hurting anybody, right? I'm not, I'm not a murderer. I'm not selling drugs. I'm not, like, yeah, I mean, I know I could do better, but like, are you really going to come at me with, 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 with this? And, and so they, they don't really feel like how they're treating one another, how they're living in their marriages. They, they don't feel like it's that big a deal. So Malachi is, is doing a little extra work to say, listen, how you're treating one another is, is profaning the covenant. And then he goes on to call it an abomination. Like, this is a word that we don't use a lot. Maybe you do. That'd be cool. But we don't use it a lot in our language. And, and it's reserved. Even God doesn't use it a lot. He reserves it for, for very particular, very offensive sins in his, in, in his kingdom. Like, he, he, he uses this language sparingly because it is significant. So he says an abomination has occurred. It's being, and it's being done by God's people. So you're going to see Israel and Jerusalem and Judah. I, I just want you to hear God's people. We could unpack the history there, and we did a little bit of that earlier in the book, but I just want you to hear God's people. He's saying God's people are, cre- are committing an abomination. So what is it? What is it that, that is, is so profaning to the covenant? What is it that is an abomination to the Lord? What is it that is profaning the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, it says the, end of verse, the middle of verse 11, he says this, he's married the daughter of a foreign God. So we're going to see, we're going to talk about marriage today. And the first thing he's going to call out is, is marrying the wrong person, marrying outside of the covenant of Christianity, marrying people from other religions. So who we marry. And then we, we're going to see later, he's going to talk about staying married, honoring our covenant. And so this matters for our worship with God. Like this is not something that we can just come to church, give some offerings, sing some songs, feel like we're okay with God and go home and our home life be totally disconnected or our marriage be totally in shambles and we get to act like 
like everything's okay. Malachi is being commissioned by God to call them out for their, their home life, not lining up with their worship, not lining up with who they claim to be as the people of God. Malachi is, is sent by God to call them out. So the first thing we see is who they are marrying. This is sacred to God, that marriage is, is a part of the creation that God has set forth in the beginning. We just saw this in the, in the marriage series, or the, the very good series, right, about our gender and sexuality, that God made them, and as he made us, he made them male and female to image his, his uh, you know, to be his image bearers in the world. He made us male and female to join together, to leave a father and mother, to cleave unto the wife. The two become one flesh. They be fruitful and multiply. They go forth and fill the earth with God's glory. That, like, that's the design. Marriage is, is right from the jump a part of what makes God's creation go from good to very good is whenever he, he brings the woman in to compliment the man to be a part of this deal. And so it's at the heart of God's glory. It's at the heart of imaging God. It's at the heart of his mission and his purpose to fill the earth and subdue it, to be fruitful and multiply, to, to, to bring more and more image bearers into the world. All of this happens through marriage. So this matters uh, immensely to God. That, that marriage would be held rightly. It is the most intimate of rela- relationships. Not only do we together, as we come together, man and woman in marriage, that we image God together and we, we experience an intimacy that is supposed to point us to worshiping God. Not only is that true, but then also this is how we uh, see the procreation of the world come to pass and we create more image bearers, more godly people, more worshipers through raising families. And so, We see this matters from the jump. We see this also matters immensely when God rescues his people out of Egypt and begins to form them into a people. When he makes the the nation of Israel, he begins to set in place for them how they should live, gives them laws. You know the Ten Commandments. You know that marriage is supposed to be held in esteem, that adultery is forbidden. We know that uh, he gives laws for who who they should marry and who they shouldn't and how they should handle um, disputes and, and wrongs and sins in marriage. All of this matters to God as he sets up for his people. He says, you will be my people and I will be your God, but we will live a certain way. A, so that my name is is not profaned amongst the world. When people know that you're my people, this is how we're going to do marriage. But more than that, this is how it's going to go well for you. You see, a lot of people look at Christian values, traditional marriage, how how we approach relationships, and, and, and they would dismiss that as ancient, right? It's it's no longer relevant. It's regressive. It's it's harmful to people. Like, that, like that's not, like we, we progress beyond that. But, but really what God is saying is, no, this is how life works. This is how I've designed life to work. So a man and a woman would join together in, in covenant marriage and they would live their life forever together until death do us part. Those, those vows, I always take some time when we do cere- wedding uh, premarital counseling and wedding ceremonies to, to pause on those vows. Some We're so used to hearing those traditional vows and everybody, most everybody says them, till death do us part. But, but in reality, it's just, those have just become traditional things we're used to hearing at, marriage, at weddings. And, and, and we're not letting that sink in, that this is the vow, the promise we're making is until one of us dies. I'm in. This is God's design. This is how humanity is meant to flourish. And so, God has guidelines for us for that to go well. And one of the things he says is, hey, we are creating a a people uh, of of Yahweh worshipers. 
These are going to be people who are followers of God. We're going to have a, a covenant community that has the same values, that has the same worldview, that worships the same God. And as a part of that, you can't marry outside of that covenant. You can't marry people from other nations. Now, I don't know about you, but this was used, as I, as I was brought up in church, this was used to uh, preach against interracial marriage. Anybody else experienced that growing up? You were, you were told that you weren't supposed to marry uh, people from other races or ethnicities because God has called us not to marry, you know, foreign foreigners and those sorts of things and, and stay within our tribe. That's a, that's a misuse and an abuse of, of what's being taught here. That is not, like interracial marriage is actually uh, honored by God and it's beautiful. He, he intends to have a colorful kingdom, amen? And he intends for the kingdom to go forth. And, and so that is not something to be condemned. What is, what is being talked about here is not skin color, ethnicity, but a heart worship, a religion, a, a posture of who are you loving, who are you giving your life to? It's about religious commitments and uh, who is their God. It, it's not about their ethnicity. It's about their worship. And so um, God has said, you, you can't, as, as you're going into these nations, you think about God pulling them out of Egypt, sending them into the promised land. If you know, the promised land was occupied by pagan people. God sent them in to kill those pagan people so that they would start over, so that they wouldn't be distracted, so they wouldn't be tempted. They, they didn't carry that out as well as they should have. And so they start to intermarry with people. We see this in Nehemiah, even on the return from exile. God has punished his people for not doing what they said, what he said to do. They spent years in exile. He brings them back to the promised land, begins to restore them. And what do they do? They start to marry foreign women. Once again, they start to give their, their women in marriage. They start to receive women from outside of their bounds. And, and, and listen, I know that this isn't quite the same. The temptations are a little bit different, and we're tempted to do this for, for different reasons. Because for them, this, this wasn't just about um, attraction, right? A lot of times they had arranged marriages and things. So it wasn't about just like, oh, I like that person. I really want to marry them. And I don't care that they're worshiping that other God. Uh, a lot of times the temptation here was for political and economical gain. That, that these other, you think about who Israel like was in this moment. They were still, uh, they were a struggling nation who were still under Persian rule, who was given the permission to go back and begin rebuilding their nation. But they were they were able to worship with autonomy, but they didn't have political and national autonomy. And so they were still struggling economically. Their infrastructure was, was rough, and, and they were impoverished. They were struggling. And so for them to marry outside, to, to, to get into some, some, um, some money, to get into some, some flourishing, some prosperity, they could do that through marriages. And so that was part of the draw here. It's different for us, but nonetheless, this still seems to be a draw, doesn't it? How many of y'all did some missional dating back in your day? You were a Christian. You knew you weren't supposed to be dating that person because they, they weren't a Christian, but you're like, you know what? I'm going to save them. Nobody's willing to raise their hand. I know some of y'all did. That's okay. You don't have to raise your hand. But we, 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 we do this, and, and we're drawn to this person, and we start to justify in our minds, well, you know, they go to church. They'll come to church with me, or, or you know, they were, they were baptized as a kid. We, we, we all, there's no fruit. There's no love of God, but, but we'll make these excuses because we want to be with this person. God says, it matters who you're going to join into this covenant with, and you can't do that. You can't worship me with all your heart, soul, mind, body, and strength. And have somebody that you're joined in intimacy in a full, like, all-in life with that's worshiping somebody else. It won't work. You'll be tempted to disregard worship for me. You'll be tempted to be, to, to be why? Because it's going to be conflict, isn't it? You might think you can make it work, but it's going to be conflict. 
You think about the intimacies of marriage and how that has to work and, 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 and caring for one another emotionally, being there, the give and take, the compromise. That's difficult enough when you're worshiping the same God, isn't it? Amen? But you think about now you've got, you don't have the same worldview. You don't have the same guide for life. You don't have the same plan for what you're gonna do on Sunday or where your kids are gonna go or how they're gonna live. Like if it's not difficult enough or if it's not easy for you to connect the difficulty, then start thinking about raising kids in that environment where there's this difference of worship. One of my, one of my best friends growing up was, his mom was Jehovah's Witness and his dad was like a cultural Christian that was a member of a Baptist church but hadn't been in like 25 years. Um, and he went with his mom when he was young, and then he just kind of was like, I'm going to stay home with dad. And then I started witnessing to him and when we were in high school, and he was like, okay, like, that, yeah, I need to figure out stuff with God, but I should, give my mom's religion, I should give my mom's religion a chance first. And so, like, he started going to Jehovah's Witness, and he started meeting with an elder and getting discipled. And I was like, man, that really backfired. That was not what I had in mind. Um, I was trying to lead this guy to Jesus, and now he's, and so it, it freaked me out. But we spent a couple years having spiritual conversations and talking, and he did. He leaned in there, but then after a while, he kind of pulled back away, and then the gospel began to just work on him. And over time, uh, I'll never forget the day that he fell into my arms and, and surrendered his life to Jesus after I got back from a mission trip when we were talking about it. It was awesome. It was one of my favorite days of my life, and that guy's still living faithfully today. I, I love what God did in his story, but listen, he, he was, there was conflict there because Mom was here, dad was there, and that was difficult. Many of you know that. Many, many of you, that's your own story. Many of you, that's part of your own marriage. And, and God has said, listen, I know that's not gonna go well because what I mean for you in marriage is so intimate, is so oneness, is such oneness, you can't do it. Because what I also mean for you in my relationship with you is not just this transactional, come to church, do this thing. It's a holistic consuming of who we are. You can't love God with all that you have and be in a covenant giving of ourselves relationship with somebody who's outside the faith. So that's why God is worried about them marrying foreign gods. And it, again, it's often about um, trying to get political or social gain. Well, what's going on there? We're not trusting God to be our provider in those moments. We're, we're trying to do it ourselves. And so there's very practical pulls and draws that, that lead us to these places. Some of you are at a place where you're, you're willing to compromise because you're not sure you're ever gonna find a spouse. Right, So, so you're, you're going to lower your standards over time because you're like, well, I, I know this is what I'm supposed to do, but man, I, like, I didn't, I didn't check all the lists. There, there, there's nobody there, God. So you, you'll start to lower your standards. You'll start to justify it by saying, man, I, I just, I know, but, I know, but, right? And, and so, yes, there's this political and economical gain for you. It, it, it's probably a different pool, but nonetheless, it's about trusting God with how we're to, to spend our life and who we are to spend our life with, even if that means no one, are we still trusting God to be our provider? So this is so sacred to God that he calls it an abomination whenever they're marrying other women. Now, I think there's two things going on here. I think one, they're just doing that from the start, but I think as we're gonna see, some of them are actually leaving their current um, you know, Jewish wives to go and marry outside to foreign uh, women as well. And so God is calling this an abomination. And he goes so far uh, to say in verse 12, may the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this and who brings an offering of the Lord to the host. So, so here's a, a, a very like, um, again, he used the word abomination and, and the, the uh, 
the, the punishment, the response from God is harsh. He says, the, 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 somebody that, that the, the word descendant there is hard to translate. You're, you're, uh, you're going to have a lot of footnotes. The, the Hebrew languages in this passage is, is pretty hard. And so if you look down at your bottom, you have a lot of footnotes just in these, these few verses. And, and so that, that, that idea that is translated descendant here in ESV may, may say something different. The one who rises up or is a witness or who, who wakes and responds. And, and really what, he, what I think God is calling out there, I think it's a, an idiom that's, that's more familiar in the, in the original language. But what he's calling out is somebody who... who um, knows this truth, still joins in foreign marriage to, to people who are not Christians, and then pretends to go right on about their life and worship God. He said, well, that, that's not going to happen. We have to discipline those people. This is, in the New Testament, would be called church discipline, or here it's going to be called excommunication. He's saying, the person who does this and tries to just go on about life, he's, last week we said, priests are just not calling people out for living, they're not living the way they're supposed to, and priests are just letting them do it. God's saying, this person that just disregards what I said about marriage and then tries to show right back up here next week and take communion like everything's cool with him and God, they need to be kicked out. They need to be removed from the fellowship. They need to be confronted. They need to be disciplined. This is a harsh response, to be sure. But as God was building his covenant people in the old covenant, there were harsh responses. Adultery, they, they, they actually just killed those people. It'd be easier, wouldn't it, in some ways, right? Uh, less legal stuff, it's just like, okay, well, this is what we do. But it was rarely done, but this was what God was put in place. Why? Because he wanted us to see how serious he was about these things and how much they mattered. And he's saying, listen, you can't just do this, disregard what I've said, and then keep worshiping and fellowshipping as if everything's okay. We are supposed to call one another to repentance. He, he, earlier, he says, don't we all have the same father? Don't we all know the rules? Why are we acting like this is okay? We're scared to call one another out. See this in our day. We're scared to get into one another's business. To be sure, there's a right way to do that. But if we're going to be in community with one another, we, we need to be willing to say, hey, what, what, are, you, what are you doing, brother? Sister, I, I'm really concerned about what, what you're doing. And that certainly should apply to people that we're dating, considering spending time with, right? Hey, What's, what's going on there? I'm concerned. Community is, is meant to keep one another from getting hard heart, to keep one another from falling into sin. And so Malachi's saying, listen, we all know what God's called us to. Why are we acting like we can do what we want? So this is a harsh response, but God uses harsh responses to, to, to startle us, to remind us, of how much these things matter, right? I, I, I'm guessing the first time that the, the community of God saw someone be stoned to death for adultery, that everybody else was a little bit less tempted to step into adultery, right? Now, we're in a new covenant. We're not called to respond that way anymore. We're gonna talk about the redemption that Jesus offers to broken marriages, even with adultery. But the point is that, that we are to take sin seriously and to see what people have to go through is we're going to see divorce cost. It's hard. And that should cause all of us to, as he's going to call us to, guard our hearts. 
Live with faith. So let's, let's keep going. That's the first thing that he calls us out for. Second thing, as he says in verse 13, the second thing you do is cover the Lord's altars with, altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards your offerings or accepts it with favor from your hand. Now, there's a couple things going on here. One is a part of the, 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 the neighboring countries, their pagan worship was to kind of have this over-emotional weeping and groaning and this kind of put on this act, if you will, and it, was, and it was meant to sort of prompt their God to respond, to return sooner, to do a work. It was, it was if we put on this, this act, the show, we weep, we groan, it will, it will manipulate our God or it will cause our God to respond. And so part of it's just, them kind of, you know, having these, these blendings of, of worship that, that are going on that God's not okay with. But then partly is them just saying, why aren't you answering our prayers, God? They're, they're weeping, they're groaning, they're coming to church, they're, they're praying, they're, they're wondering why their lives aren't good, why things aren't going the way that God promised. They're praying, they're doing all this. Verse 14, he says, but you say, why does he not? Why isn't God accepting our offering? Why isn't he hearing our prayers? And he says this, because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. So, this is a harsh reminder that our, what our lives are looking like at home, what's going on in our marriages, affects what's going on in our relationship with God. Some of you are familiar with the passage from 1 Peter chapter 3, where, where Peter says that we should love, the husband should care for their wives well. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you in the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So Peter here is echoing what we see from Malachi saying, listen, you wonder why your prayers aren't being heard. God says, listen, I know what's going on in your home. Listen to the way that God says it. He says, I, I was a witness between you and the wife of your youth. I don't know if God was on your guest list, but guess what? He attended your wedding. He was there. He says, I witnessed it, I saw it. And, and, and the idea of witnessing also carried some more weight for these folks. If you've been to a wedding that I do, you know that I also, after the, the, the folks that are getting married say their vows, I look out to the crowd and I say, now listen, you're here as a witness. I, I hope you brought a good gift and that's awesome, but you're here as a witness. Meaning you heard what these two just said to each other. So we are now here to enforce these vows. We're here to push them back toward one another. We're here to help them stay together. We, we don't take this lightly, and then when they come to us and they're struggling in marriage, we go, yeah, you know what? It's, you should probably just leave that fool. No, we're, we're a part of this. Now, so witness for them was not just an observer, but was somebody who was actually be called upon legally even to enforce what was vowed. And so God is saying, listen, I know that you're just letting these women go. You're not real concerned about them. But listen, I'm here to be a witness toward the, for those women. Because for, for them to divorce women and just disregard them left women in an incredibly, really hard to describe, vulnerable place. They had very little means of which caring for themselves in this culture, in this moment, uh, they, if, if they didn't have offspring. I mean, it was just difficult. Uh, they had little to no recourse um, as far as, you know, 
making sure they were cared for from their husband. And so the husbands could just, you know, kind of dump them and move on to the next thing. And, and God's saying, uh, no, no, no. Your buddies may be cool with that. Your buddies may be telling you it's all good. They might high five you about your new girlfriend. But no, no, I'm here to be a witness for your wife of your youth. It's not okay. God is calling these men back to responsibility for the covenant that they made. And he's saying, listen, we ain't got anything to talk about until you get your marriage right. We ain't got anything to talk about until you treat your wife the way that I've called you to treat her. Don't, don't disregard her. Don't hard, you know, like cold shoulder her. Don't walk away from her. Don't be, you know, stepping out on her. Don't be looking at, at porn and acting like everything's okay. And then come to me with your prayers. We've got issues. We start here. We start with your home, men. God says, no, no, we, we're not doing a prayer thing if you're not honoring the covenant that you made with your wife. Now listen, I know this, this seems harsh, but again, I want you to hear what God intends for marriage. He says, to whom you've been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. I want you to hear how God describes marriage right there. He says two things. He says, though she is your companion, right? There is a, a closeness here. This is not just a business relationship. This is not just a legal obligation. This is our partner that we're supposed to do life with. If you remember when we walked through the marriage series, we, we spent more than one time, we talked about what does God mean when he created Eve and called her a helper. It, that doesn't translate really well in, in English. The word there is ezrkenigdo. It's this life sustainer, the one who completes, who comes alongside and, and, and meets the need, the one who shows up, right? This is Adam is given a role, given a commission to do his work in the world, and he says, but it's not good that he's alone, he needs this, this woman to come alongside. And so this is a companion that is supposed to be sharing the deepest, um, the deepest parts of life, the highest highs, the lowest lows, the most intimate parts of life, the, the, the most, like God has given us the gift of physical intimacy and attached to it ecstasy that is really hard to describe and it should not be a shameful thing for us as Christians. God has put that there to, to amplify, to galvanize the bond that is supposed to exist between man and woman. So she, she's your companion. The wife of your youth should not just be that. She shouldn't just be the one who, well, you know, as long as she's young and looks good and, you know, fulfills her deal, then, then this is cool, but if not, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to trade her in. No, no, that's not how this works, because she's not only your commandment, she's your wife by covenant. By covenant. Now, we don't use that word a lot either, but, but covenant matters. It's not contract, right? Contracts aren't bad, but that's not what marriage is, right? You enter into contracts with businesses with different folks, like cell phone companies or whatever. You say, hey, as long as you're doing this, I'll give you this, right? And, and they say the same thing. As long as you give this, this much money, we'll give you this cell service, and that iPhone that costs so much money. But, like, that's the contract. But you stop paying them, guess what? iPhone don't work anymore, right? And they, they stop, your iPhone stops working, you're not going to keep paying the bill, right? That's a contract. There's nothing wrong with contracts, but that's not what we're doing here in marriage. A covenant is saying, listen, I'm here, period. I'm loving you until one of us dies, period. You get sick, I'm there. We're poor, still there. You don't like me anymore, I'm still there. You get ugly, I'm still there. Period. No matter what you do, it's, it's not a contract. Hey, as long as you look good, as long as you're in that size of you know, clothes, as long as whatever. 
No, I'm there, period. And guess what the other side is saying? I'm there, period. When two people make that kind of commitment to one another, that's a covenant. And inside that covenant is where we are meant to experience this companionship, this ecstasy of of pleasure, this beauty of having someone with you, right? Your ride or die, as some would say, right? This is someone that's not going anywhere. The person you always know is going to be there for you no matter what. This is what God has meant for us in marriage, and and it's good, and that's what we committed to, and God says, I witnessed that, and that's not how you're living now, and I'm here to call you out for that, because marriage is meant to be more than just a contractual um, agreement that we do as long as it benefits. That's not what it is. That's, that's, that's selling it short of what God has meant for it to be. He goes to say, uh, verse 15, uh, did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union? God's saying, when they, were, when they were there getting getting married, like, and I say this at ceremonies too, like it's not me like marrying those folks. That's God joining them together. Jesus says, what, what, what God has joined together, don't, don't let man tear apart. So what's happening in marriage, even, even non-Christians, like this is a common grace institution for, uh, for people. Like um, can non-Christians marry each other? Yeah, totally, right? Um, could two Christians marry each other? Are they supposed to, Christians supposed to marry non-Christians? Nope. But can non-Christians still experience the, the joy of marriage? Yeah. Like God has made this as a good gift. And so I, I've time, folks come to me and relationships I'm building in the community with friends, neighbors, you know, coworkers, whatever, and they ask me to do their wedding. If they're both, if they're not Christians, they're not, they're not trying to follow Christ, like, yeah, I'll do their wedding because I'm going to get to talk about Jesus. I'm going to talk about the goodness of, of, of marriage and how God is, like, because we don't do any marriages without, we don't do any weddings without premarital counseling. So, yeah, I'm, I'm good to talk about that. We'll, we'll enter into that. When, when folks are saying, well, we're Christians and we're, we're already living together. We're Christians. We're, we're one of us is Christian and the other one's not. Okay, we're, we're not going to go forward with this because we're kind of giving God the finger and still wanting to do what we want to do. We got, we got some conversations to have there. But God has given us this marriage, this gift of marriage, as a, as a blessing. And he says that when man and woman are joined together at that altar, that's him doing that. They become one. That God does that. That he, that he mysteriously, through giving part of himself, part of his spirit, he makes the two become one. We see this is consummated, right, in the physical act of intimacy. But it's this actual joining of marriage. The language there of, of, of by covenant um, the, the companion and the wife by covenant is, um, again, difficult to translate, but, but actually is, um, is an architectural word that's used to refer, in, in the verb form, it's also used to refer to like a seam or a joint in construction. And so when you're, when you're joining or cementing um, a portion of the building, like that's, that's the same idea that, that's being talked about by the wife by covenant, like this joining together. And what that means is they're now joined together in such a way that to separate them does incredible damage. Right? Some of y'all did a unity ceremony of some sort. Um, how many of y'all did sand? Unity, you, you mixed two different colors of sand. Nobody wants to participate today. How many of y'all did sand? Nobody? Okay, somebody back there. How many of y'all did candles? You, you took two candles and joined together. Okay, your family's participated in that, right? Um, I don't know what else I've seen. It doesn't matter. But you do some kind of ceremony, and the idea is to show that two have now become one, and you can't, like you take 
the flame from two candles and light one new candle, you can't now separate those flames back out, right? The, the sand, two different colors, you pour them together, they're all mixed in. Like, technically you could, but man, it's going to do some damage to your sanity trying to s- separate that all back out, right? Like, what has been joined together as one cannot be separated again into two without significant damage. And that's what God is saying. This is the idea of him joining together. And, and okay, so, so this is what God has for us in marriage. And, and he goes on to say, and what was God seeking? What was the one God seeking through this marriage? Well, it's godly offspring. So God has a, a plan and a purpose. We talked about it earlier. Like part of his plan was to, for Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply, right? He wants the, the earth to be filled with his glory. How is he going to do that? Through godly people raising godly kids, right? Like procreating, that's a part of the deal. I think that even profaning the sanctuary was used earlier. And I, and I think that does just talk about the worship of God's people. This was meant to be a place where they come and worship together and, and they have a unity of mind and a unity of spirit and, and they're getting a glimpse into heaven and to bring in foreign folks or to have to leave them outside because they're, they're, they're not believers, that, that profanes the sanctuary. But I think what it could also mean, because the original language is not real clear here either, uh, profaning the sanctuary may actually be talking about the future generations of offspring that God intends to dwell amongst. Because we know that now that the temple isn't sacred, right? We're here in a pole building because why? We're the sanctuary, we're the temple of God. So God intends for future generations of godly people and disciples to be raised up. And he's saying, when, when you have a home that is no longer uh, unified and following me, that, that godly offspring is going to be compromised. Can God still work in those environments? Sure, I just told you a story about how my friend was, was saved, even though there was two different religions. But is that God's intention? No, he, he intends for godly people to have offspring and disciple catechize and raise up their kids in the faith. And so that's, that's a part of God's plan. So marriage is not just about us. Some of y'all are struggling in your marriage because it's just about you. You're not happy in your marriage because you're not happy and you think your spouse exists to make you happy. Guess what? They don't. They, they don't. It, it doesn't, that's not actually true. They exist to make you holy. And, and becoming holy isn't always a happy process, is it? So part of, your, part of our problem in marriage is we're short-sighted. We want to be happy. We don't want to be unhappy. And so this marriage isn't making me happy, so I'm going to get out. Marriage isn't just about you. It's about a legacy. It's about what happens down the road. How many of you have reflected on or gone to counseling because of things par- your parents did or your grandparents did that have affected you? Maybe good or bad. But you've had the thought, man, mom or dad did this, this is a part of my life. Do you think about that downline too? Because guess what? What you're doing is affecting downline. It's affecting your kids and your grandkids. There's a legacy factor. We need to have that in mind. And God's saying, you, you may think you're trading in short-term gains for long-term legacy. Yeah, God knows that they're not flourishing the way that he intends for them to flourish right now in Jerusalem, in Judah. He knows that. But he has a long-term plan to grow them back into a people who are not just prospering economically, but are prospering spiritually, who are worshiping God faithfully. So yeah, it might not happen with this generation. But as you raise a generation through this struggle, as you raise a generation with their eyes on Jesus, that over time God creates and cultivates a people who are worshiping him Holistically, that's what he has in mind. He's saying, you're compromising that. 
This is why this all matters to God so much. So he goes on to say, so guard yourselves in, in your spirit. Let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. So this is why this matters so much. And here's what God tells us to do. Guard our hearts. Don't be faithless. Don't be people who are quick to run to divorce. Don't be people who entertain divorce because he says divorce is harmful. Some of your translations will just straight up say God hates divorce. Right? And, there, and there's debate. You find commentators all over the place about what it actually means. And, and however you translate it, the point is still the same. Divorce is not in God's plan, and it is painful. And, and I think it's fine to say that God hates divorce. I think that's true. That doesn't mean he hates you. Those of you who have been through divorce, those of you who have struggled with this, it doesn't mean he hates you. He hates divorce because he loves his people. You understand that? God hates divorce because he loves his people and he knows that it's painful. He knows that it's hard. Right? You ask anybody who's been through it, even if they feel really, really justified in their divorce, and they'll still tell you it was awful. And it is awful still. Almost everybody who's been through it will tell you that. It's awful. It's painful. The emotional toil, the, the financial toil, the, the physical toil, the kids, like, it, it's awful. It's not really debated. So, of course, God hates divorce because he loves his people. He doesn't want this for them. Okay? That doesn't mean he doesn't allow divorce in some circumstances for the, for the best interest of his people. He, he does indeed. There are two um, instances where God does allow divorce. We've talked about this at length at other points in the sermon. It's not going to be the primary thing today. I'm going to mention them, and I want you to know if you would like to talk through that more, if there's questions for you, I would, I would be glad to do that afterward or schedule a time to do that. But, but indeed, God does uh, allow for Matthew 19.9. Jesus says, listen, um, if, if there is adultery, divorce is permitted. Right? Because the person who would be filing for divorce isn't the one breaking the covenant because the person who stepped out in the affair already broke the covenant. So in that case, it's permitted. Not required, but permitted. The other one would be abandonment. Right, First Corinthians 7, um, <clears throat> Paul says, uh, if, if there's an unbeliever, they, they won't stay. They separate. That person is not enslaved. They, they're called to live in peace. They don't have to fight that. They, they can, that person goes. They, they can, they're free to remarry. They, they, divorce is is legit. Now, here's the deal with both of those things. Those things are not equations. Those things are to be worked through in community. Here's what I mean. Just because there was adultery doesn't mean there has to be divorce. Do we not know our God as a God of redemption? Do we not know our God as a God of restoration? Do we not know that as a primary tra trait of his that we celebrate? So, so we don't want to sell that short, right? So there should be opportunity to work through that. The same thing with abandonment. Like it's hard to know, okay, well, is it this or that? And what about abuse? And, and is that in there? And, and here's the idea. Here's the reality of what Paul is working through in 1 Corinthians 7 is, is there are people who are not willing to, to submit to Jesus and continue in the, the covenant that they've entered into. And so um, a, the, the Bible does not call a woman to continue to submit to abuse in the name of honoring her marriage and her covenant. No, the, the Bible calls 
the church to call that man out. To, to, to enter him into church discipline. His wife should confront him first. If that doesn't work, she brings in the church. The church brings in the elders. We confront that man and say, you don't get to abuse your wife. You don't get to, and it could go the other way. You don't get to abuse your husband. But the church enters in. Separation is often uh, facilitated by the church. And while we call that abusive party to repentance, to help, to counseling, we're gonna care for one another and we're gonna ultimately hope for reconciliation. And if that abusive party meets, meets that with repentance and a soft heart and receptiveness to the resources that we give them, then yeah, we hope for reconciliation and restoration of that relationship. But if that abusive party says, no thanks, I don't care, this is what I want to do, or they just shut down and won't return calls, they won't enter back into the covenant of marriage, I think the Bible would say, okay, that person's now acting like an unbeliever, whether they claim it or not. And over time, divorce may be the best option because that's a form of abandonment, of refusing to re-enter into the covenant the, the way that we've the, make the promises, to fulfill the promises we've made, a refusal to enter into that, that can be a form of abandonment. But here's the deal. That's not an equation. That, those, are, those are circumstances to be worked through in community. I would encourage uh, to get pastors involved, friends, community involved in processing that. It should take a long time. We should be uh, wading through that carefully and looking through and, and bringing all that before the Lord before we just run to an attorney. Okay, But just because God allows for those instances of divorce doesn't mean we should be quick to run to it. And at the same time, just because God hates divorce doesn't mean he hates you who have been through divorce. He, he loves you, and he is a God of redemption and reconciliation. In fact, he's the, he's the God sitting here saying, hey, I'm a witness to those of you who have been harmed, those of you that have been abandoned. I'm a witness for you. Justice will be served. We'll see that next week. Justice will be served. I will make sure that you're cared for, and I will make sure that those who have harmed you are called to account. God is serious about how we respond in marriage so here's what he says to do. Guard yourselves in your spirit and don't be faithless in your marriage. What does that mean? First, I think you need to look at your God. Look at your God. What does it mean to guard yourself in your spirit? It means look at God. What, like Before you start thinking about your spouse, before you start thinking about the state of your marriage, I want you to look at your God. We've already seen in Malachi how you're viewing God is going to affect how you're viewing others and how you're behaving in your life. So look at your God. How are you viewing him? How's your relationship with him? Is there distance? Is there bitterness? Is there contempt? Is there a dismissal of who he is? I want you to start here and because the fear of God is the beginning of all wisdom, right? Honoring God leads to obeying and to having faith. Dishonoring God, dismissing what God has said, who he is, that leads to all sorts of justification of sins. So if you're here and you're believing that your marriage is a lost cause, believing that he or she will never change, that you actually want out, regardless of what God says, you aren't happy, You'll take your chances with his forgiveness. I've had people tell me that. I know that God doesn't want divorce, but he'll forgive. So I'm gonna do it anyway. If that's where you're at, if the distance between you and your spouse just seems too far, you no longer feel like it's worth it, the love doesn't seem to be there, and on and on we go with the explanations. Here's what I think Malachi is saying. Your primary problem isn't with your spouse. Your primary problem is with God. 
you've got a God problem. Isn't it primarily about how you're viewing them or how they're treating you? It's with how you're walking with God because when you say that your your spouse is too far gone, that your marriage is beyond repair, you're saying that God isn't able. You're saying that he can't redeem what's broken. He can't take lost things and bring them back to life when in fact we know him by that very reputation exclusively. He's the only one who can. We sing about this. We rejoice in this. We've been a church who's been able to see marriages restored. And so if you're just refusing to bring him your marriage, it may just be that you actually don't want it to be redeemed. You actually want what you want and you're holding on to it. If that's you, God is warning you right now through this passage not to embrace that, not to continue down that road. It's not okay to hold on to that and just resolve that this is what I want and this, is, this thing is over, I'm just waiting them out. Or, the statistics would say, There's more than one of you in here who are just planning to wait it out until your kids are grown. And you know that. Maybe you've talked about it. Maybe you just know that personally. If that's where you're at, I implore you to look your God in the face. Start there. Look at the one who said, yeah, I know there's no way but I'm gonna make a way. I know that you're completely lost, but I'm gonna completely find you. I want you to look at that, God, start there. This is, like that, holding on to that, resolving that, that's when some real justification starts to kick in and, and Christians start to say some really wild things because they actually have just decided that's what they want and that's where they're headed. You need to repent of that, you need to bring that back to the Lord. This is what it means to guard yourself in the spirit, is to guard your own personal walk with the Lord. That's the key to everything else. And then secondly, look at your spouse. Don't be faithless toward your spouse. What does that mean? It's interesting. Hebrews uh, chapter 11 verse 1 uh, defines faith for us. And it's interesting as we start thinking about this, applying it to our marriage. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Some of you see no redemptive qualities in your spouse anymore. Right? You only see the gut, the bad attitude, and the broke bank account. You see no love for you. You see no pursuit of you. Listen, don't be faithless. Don't act like there's no way when God has proven he will make a way. Don't be a faithless person when it comes to your marriage. Have some faith. Look at, let God assure you that he is at work and that even if he doesn't work, your faithfulness will still matter in the grand scheme of eternity and you being faithful to that covenant will still be better in heaven on the other side than you getting out and getting some short-term pleasure from relief from this deal or in a different relationship or whatever. No, this is what God has called you to and it is worth obeying. It is worth staying in it. It is worth honoring this covenant, that's an exercise of faith. So look at your spouse and ask those same questions. How are you viewing them? What's your relationship like? Is there distance? Is there bitterness? Contempt? Pain? Dismissal? Here at The Journey, we we say often, we want to be a place that helps. Too often, the world of Christianity has become a place where everybody puts on plastic smiles and likes like everything's okay until all of a sudden we hear that somebody's divorced. And we're like, I thought everything was fine. That's because you were acting like everything was fine. 
That's why we see every week. Don't act like everything's fine. Let us help. Some of you, I've had people say, why didn't God show up? He knew I was thinking about an affair. He knew this. He knew that. And I'm like, dude, he did show up. It was me and the other elder and the guys in your community group that were here like, are you okay, bro? And no, God's not doing it. Like, that, that's God showing up. The, the, the easy burden and the light yoke that God promises us doesn't mean that life's going to go great and everything's going to be easy. It means that, hey, you've got a community to carry it with you now. So you've got to speak up. You've got to speak up when you smell smoke. We'll still show up when your house is burning down. There's not a lot we can do. You gotta speak up. You gotta tell us when you smell smoke. We believe in biblical counseling. We believe in pastoral counseling. We believe in wrapping around with community. We believe that Jesus can redeem marriages no matter what the story is. So look at God. Take an honest look at what you're believing about him. Look at your spouse. Take an honest assessment of where you are. And don't be faithless. And don't just try to fix your marriage without looking at God. Don't just fix your marriage waiting on your spouse to do something. You get on your knees before the Lord. You exercise prayer. You exercise bringing this before the Lord. You call on the name of Jesus to show up in your marriage the ways that he shows up in the Bible. You honor your covenant. You honor your promise. You say, okay, God, I know you witnessed this. I know we're far from you. We need you to help lead us back. You start praying prayers like that. Guard your spirit, guard your heart with the Lord. Show faith toward your spouse. Think about what it means to live by faith. It means it's not always visible in front of us, right? We've got to believe. It's assurance of things hoped for, evidence of things not seen. You don't see a way forward with your spouse, you don't see them changing. Living by faith is going to be choosing to love them, honor them, move toward them anyway. Hope that we continue to be a place that sees marriages restored. But it can only happen if you're willing to speak up and say, hey, we're not okay. We're not okay. Let's pray. God, would you help us to be a people who don't take your marriage covenant lightly, to be a people who honor you by loving one another well? Would you help us? Father, would you, would you speak loudly and clearly to those who have been harmed, to those who have gone through divorces, that, that your voice would be loudest this morning, that there would be no condemnation, that, that there is grace in Christ Jesus, that you do indeed redeem, that though divorce brings a, a, a garment of violence, we're filthy without, it, it covers us with filth, it covers us with, with harm, yet we, we can't stand before you without you doing something, but, I, but it says, hey, you, you say in Isaiah, though your sins be as scarlet, come and I'll make them white as snow. I pray for those that their garments have been made filthy by their own decisions or by the decisions of someone else. I pray that they would experience the redeeming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that they would be made clean and made whole, and that they would know that they could stand before you forgiven because of what Jesus has done and that they could stand faithful in their marriage doing all that they can to honor you regardless of what their spouse is doing. I pray that we'd see that kind of salvation go forward, that kind of forgiveness and redemption this morning. I pray that marriages that are far from you, that are far from one another, that they would have the courage to say, hey, I need help. Spirit, would you come and stir in this place? It's in Jesus' name.